We are continuing along the chronological life of Jesus, and uh, we're in the Tuesday of the last week of his life, and he's still undergoing these challenges, and this is not without a purpose. So the Sadducees, the Pharisees, are coming to him and challenging him, and they are doing it in order to trap him in certain things, but they don't realize that they're actually testing him in order to make sure that he's without spot and without blemish, because this is the testing time. Remember, they set aside the lamb on Monday, and there's several days then of testing, and this is how they're testing him. And we finished up last time about how he was tested by the Sadducees, and after that testing by the Sadducees, um, the Sadducees said, we're never going to test him again. I mean, his answer was just so profound on the resurrection. <clears throat> and, then it, and then there's another portion, and it says in, uh, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, we're going to be reading from Matthew and from Mark, because the, the same passage is talked about, but talked about a little bit differently. In Master, Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, it says, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. Okay, so the Pharisees were really impressed at the way that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, there are no spirits, there are no angels. Jesus made reference to angels. Jesus clearly spoke about the resurrection in the first five books of Moses. And then, and then uh, uh, but now the Pharisees are not done, so they're coming to test Him. It says in verse 35 of Matthew 22, one of them a lawyer asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So, it says that, that the, the Pharisees came, and it says that this... this uh, this lawyer came, and, and a lawyer is not like our lawyers today. This lawyer meant he was an expert in the Mosaic law, in the law of Moses. And he's testing him because it says, asking him the question, testing him. So, his purpose is to test, this. does Jesus really know what he's talking about? He says, which is the great commandment in the law? And so now, and then Jesus speaks these couple of things, and he says, in verse 40, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So all of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, depends on adherence to these two commandments. Everything is built upon the foundation of these two. So let's turn to Mark chapter 12 and read the parallel chapter in Mark chapter 12. One of the scribes, in, this is uh, in, in verse 28, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard him arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like this. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else beside him. 
and to love Him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He had answered intelligently, He said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask Him any more questions. So, this summed up the questioning of Jesus to show that He really knew what He was talking about. But what's interesting here is, if you look at what Jesus cites, He says, what are the greatest commandments? If you were to walk up to somebody today and say, what are the greatest commandments in all of the Old Testament? I bet if they had any literacy, they would say the Ten Commandments. Jesus never cited the Ten Commandments. Now remember, He's the Son of God. He's God come in the flesh. He knows what He's talking about. So He's right. If we differ with Him, we're wrong. He's right. It's sort of the way it works with God and people. And it says, it says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus doesn't go to the Ten Commandments, which are first spoken about in Exodus chapter 20. He actually turns to a portion in Deuteronomy. And this portion in De- Deuteronomy says, The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's what it says. Now, Jesus adds something to this. He, he adds to this, he says that uh, with all your, your, your strength, with all your understanding, and, and, but Jesus focuses in on this verse. So it's really telling what he doesn't cite. He doesn't cite the Ten Commandments. He pulls this one out. Now, this particular portion is very important to a Jew. I remember my grandfather would quote this to me. This is called the Shema, which in, in, in Hebrew is... is uh, the, the Shema means, means um, to hear. Shema means hear. So, because the first word of the passage is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So, they take the first word. And, and so, even three-year-olds can quote the Shema, the Shema in, in, in Israel. So, you ask a three-year-old, what's the Shema? Boom, they say it. They are taught this very early on. So, it's interesting that Jesus what the rabbis were teaching in the first century is exactly what we see today as as this fundamental portion. It wasn't the Ten Commandments. And then he goes on, he says, and the second is like it. Now, this is a tiny little verse in, in Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in fact, it's just a, a, about a third of Leviticus 19, 18. So, this obscure passage in Leviticus 19.18 is what Jesus puts along with the greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's some parts of a sentence. Then it says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then the rest of the sentence. These few little words in Leviticus 19. Again, really odd what Jesus would pull out. And it only says it once in the Old Testament. Both the Shema and, and, and this portion about loving your neighbor are not stated again. They're only listed once in the entire Old Testament. Now, they're listed multiple times in the New Testament, but only once in the Old Testament. Really interesting what he seems to pull out. And if you think about it, so, so if, if we just look at the text here, this Pharisee, remember, Pharisees were ones who justified themselves based on their activity, based on what they did. 
I tithe, I, I, I do this, I fast two days a week. I mean, the typical pharisaical things. Jesus says this, and this Pharisee, this lawyer, looks at him and he says, you are absolutely right. He goes on and he repeats the same himself. He says that to love God with everything we've got is the most important thing and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Then the Pharisee adds to it, this is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, no matter what I do as a Pharisee, all the things that I think I can do to justify myself, this is more important. Jesus looks at him, saw that he answered intelligently or wisely and said, you're not far from the kingdom. You're not far. In other words, he hadn't yet received Messiah, so he wasn't in the kingdom yet. But he said, you're not far. Because when we come to the realization that there's no way that I can earn my way into heaven, that this is more important than anything that I could ever do, is to love God and my fellow human being. This is more important than everything. That's a huge step. Because the vast majority of people, you would say, how do you think you get to God? They say, well, if your good works... Outweigh your bad works, you'll be okay. Typical. I mean, even people who are atheists will say the same thing. Your good works outweigh your bad works. This scribe, this lawyer, says, this is more important than anything. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're not far from the kingdom. You're not far. The realization that there is nothing that you and I can do to get ourselves into heaven, but to realize that we are to love God, that it's got to be something beyond ourselves, is what's important. So if you're here today and you don't know God, I'm just saying there's no great thing that you can do to get yourself into, into heaven. It is the realization that you're a sinner, that I'm a sinner, and the only way we can get to God is through His mercies. This is the only way. The other thing that's interesting about this verse is he says, he says, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? What I want you to learn to do is just look at the Scriptures and see what it says. What did the Scriptures say? If we could learn to look at the Scriptures, not just read a verse and make it sort of perfunctory and then just tell a story. That's not what we're here for. To read a verse that's tangentially related to a story that I might want to tell, and then tell my story. Now, what does the text say? This is what it means to study the Scriptures, to meditate on it. What does it say? He says, what is the greatest commandment? This is what was asked of him. What commandment is the foremost of all? So imagine you have a scholar. This is a real scholar of Israel an expert in the law. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, what is the greatest commandment? This is great. I mean, what's, the, what's Jesus going to say? What's the Master going to say? That we get a front row seat into hearing the answer. It is fun for me to see scholars in a certain area talking with one another. Now, a lot of times I don't understand what they're saying because I don't understand the nuances of the language that goes on. But I still enjoy just seeing it. 
because it's at a very high level. I get to see the discussions that go on between scholars. So one will ask a question, and then the other scholar. And so they're answering this at the highest level. This is part of the exciting thing about working in the academy, about working in, in, in the university. That you get to be around experts in certain fields, and you get to hear just the, the discussions between them. It's happening. This is an exciting thing. So yes, what's the, the, what commandment is foremost of all? This is not just a silly little question. He's testing Jesus, but it's interesting what Jesus says. Then he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is, is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You shall love the Lord your God. So this, this thing of <clears throat> the Lord your God, the Lord is one, this is the composite one. So in Hebrew you have a composite one. So this is one, this is one lectern. It's a composite because it has legs and a tabletop. So it's, it's put together, it's a composite one. A spoon would be one singular only absolutely. This oneness is a composite one which is believers, we have some sort of understanding. And the vast majority of times that God is called one is this composite one in, in the Old Testament, this echad one rather than yahid, which is the, the individual one. But, but what's interesting here, and he says, here's the commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus adds to the Old, Old Testament. He adds, with all your mind. Now, when this lawyer recites it himself, he says, you're right. He says, and there's no one else besides him, and you're to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength. He doesn't say mind. Jesus put in mind. You go look in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it doesn't say mind. Jesus added, he wants your mind too. I think this is wonderful. That Jesus added to this, I want your mind as well. But now look what he says. He says, you shall love the Lord your God. I mean, this is really odd. You shall love the Lord your God. It's like walking up to my child. You shall love me. Huh? You shall love me. I mean, love is like the only thing that you can't command. It's the only thing you cannot command somebody to do is what he tells us to do. You see how odd this is? He could have gone back to the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Okay, I won't kill anybody, alright? But he commands us to love him. It's a really odd thing of all the things for Jesus to pick out. And then it doesn't stop there. He commands us, and you shall love your neighbor. If he had said, you play nice with your neighbor. Okay, I'll play nice. But you shall love? How do you command love? It's the only thing that cannot be commanded. There's nothing else. How do you command love? You can command submission. You can command that people give money. You can command all sorts of things. But how do you command love? 
Do you see how high level this is? This is really high level and we just, oh, that's neat. But, you know, God has something so deep for us. Jesus knows exactly what He's doing. He commands us to love. How do you command somebody to love? Because love is not something that can just be commanded. You can't do it. Love is earned. Love is something that is earned. You earn love. This is what happens. Love is something that is earned. So you see somebody or somebody does something. Love is earned. What's going on here? And this is, this is the, 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 the conundrum here. Of all the things that he should have told us to do, command us, he says you've got to love. If you look at the Ten Commandments, four of the ten deal with our relationship with God. Six of the ten deal with our relationship with other people. Embodied in these verses is the Ten Commandments are embodied in these verses. All of the law and the prophets, Jesus said, are embodied in these verses. It doesn't work. It's not going to work without this. It's not going to work. If you don't love God, none of the other commandment stuff is going to work. But then he goes in and he starts to talk to us about what, what this might mean. We're at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So when you look at this passage, it says that God has very much earned our love. He can only command love if it's something that's been earned. You can only command love if it's something that's been earned. So you see a child that's grown up in a loving and caring family. And I can look at this, this, this young person and say, you really ought to love your parents. With what they have done for you, they deserve your love. You see what I mean? The love was something that was earned. And then I can say, you really need to love your parents. These are good people. They've done a lot for you. Love is something that is earned. And only then can there be this expectation of love. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were dead. I mean, this is as if it wasn't just a child that was born into this family. This is as if the child were an orphan, were on the street, and was going to die. 
And this family took this child and washed them up and brought them into this home and made them an heir. You know, they wrote them, this child into the will. Made them an heir. It is fair to say to this child, why do you resent these people that have done this for you? You really ought to love them. This is the context in which he has for us. He says, you were dead in your transgressions. In other words, the things that we have done, these little sins that we oh yeah, okay, I've said this. This is enough to send us to hell forever. The little things that we have done. If you think you're really pretty good, you've not seen the light. Any one of these things, any little thing is enough to declare to us that we are unrighteous. And he says, you were dead in your transgressions, but he made you alive together with Christ. In other words, he took you, not only was this a child in the gutter, dead. This mother and father came and gave mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and brought this child back to life. This kid was dead. We were dead in our transgressions and God brought us back to life. And then... He made us alive together with who? With his, his son. He brought us into his family, made us alive together with his son. And then he reminds us, by grace you've been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Look what God does at the picture that he takes of this child who was dead and needed resuscitation. Paid all the medical bills, paid all their education, just got them all washed up. Then he seated him in heavenly places, next to their very own Son. This is the picture. On that basis, you can command love. This is something that you really ought to love. In fact, if this child doesn't love these parents, that child is disturbed and messed up. Only in that context can love be commanded. Because love is something that's earned. And God did this to demonstrate, it says, the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God wanted to demonstrate to the world the surpassing greatness of His love. Then He reminds us again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. How can I get this? Through faith. Believing in Him. It's not by some work that we can do. It's by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he tell, what did he tell uh, um, Nicodemus? Nicodemus came to him by night and he asked a question. He says, nobody can do the things that you do without coming from God. And then Jesus goes into this huge diatribe. I mean, Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel. Just before that, in John chapter 2, it says, Jesus, Jesus knew all men. For he knew what was in all men. It's the last line of chapter 2 of John. The first line of chapter 3 is, And a man came to him, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Remember, in the original Bible, there are no chapters. There's no verse numbers, there's no chapters, it's written. Jesus knew what was in all men. He knew everything about men and what was in all men. And a man came to him. He already knew what was in this man. He knew about him. And he said, and you're a teacher of Israel. Again, a very high level conversation. You see conversations between Jesus and the highest level people in Israel. 
And then you see conversations between Jesus and Samaritan women. Women because they were inferior at the time. And Samaritans because they were vastly inferior at the time. And you see a conversation between them. And you watch the dialogue that he has with them. With this high-level dialogue, he goes in and he starts speaking and he says, just as Moses, he, he, told, he told Nicodemus, raised up the, the serpent in the wilderness. Whoever looked at the serpent was saved. Can you imagine what it was like for Nicodemus to look at Jesus up on the cross? Remember, it was Nicodemus that went with Joseph of Arimathea and got Jesus down from the cross and buried him. Nicodemus believed at that point. And Nicodemus believed when the Savior himself was dead. Can you imagine believing when your, your Savior is dead? He wasn't yet resurrected. The Savior was dead and he believed. Because Jesus said, whoever looks on that shall be saved. It's a very simple thing. So there were these, there was the the, the reference that Jesus is citing. He says that the Israelites had murmured against God and spoken against God. And so serpents were released upon them in the wilderness and were killing them. And he told Moses, okay, set something up. When people just look at that thing, they're going to be saved. It is a very simple thing. You look on Jesus and you accept Him as your Messiah and you can be saved. It is that simple. Based on faith, you can be saved. It is by faith you are saved. It is not a result of works. There is no work that you and I can do to deserve this love. And He showers it upon us, something that we absolutely do not deserve. He showers upon us. And he says, on this basis, you're to love Him. On this basis. And then the other thing is, you're to love your neighbor. You are to love your neighbor. You say, well, my neighbor certainly didn't earn my love. But what does he do? He starts with what God does for us. He reaches out to us. And He shows forth His love to us While we were yet sinners, it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, He died for us. He says, now, my commandment to you is love your neighbor. Well, they haven't earned my love. Okay, well, you didn't earn my love either. But I still love you. We are to initiate love. We are to initiate love. And when... You give to something and you pour your life into something, then you love it. I'll give you an example. I love this particular fellowship, this body of Christ, this church, however you want to name it. I love it. One of the reasons I love it is because I have given enormously to this since we moved to Houston more than 15 years ago. I've given my money, I've given my time, and it's given back to me many times over. They've taken care of my children. They've been there for us when we were sick. When we were in need, they were there for us. They taught my children how to sing. I never taught my children. I don't know how to teach my children how to They taught my children how to sing. They put them through Awanas. They had all this, the, 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 just the whole life, the body of Christ. I care about this place. I can't just say, oh, well, I think I'll just go to another place. I can't do that. I'm invested here. You see what I mean? When you pour your life into something, you don't leave it. I mean, there's something there. I can't just walk out on my family. I've got too much invested. 
I mean, I've just poured my life into them. I can't just walk out on them. When you care about something, when you give to something, it makes you love that something more. You do something for others, you will love them more. You will love them more. When you pour out yourself for another, it will cause you to love them more. This is the basic principle of the gospel. And then he he goes through and he says at the end of this portion in Ephesians chapter 2 that we read, verse 10, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Remember, we don't get saved by good works, but He created us to do good works. Now love your neighbor. I am commanding you to love your neighbor. I'm commanding you to love your neighbor. You are created now for good works. For good works. This is profound, deep teaching that Jesus has given. He deserves our love. He has earned our love. So He can command the love. And then He commands us to love our neighbor. To give of ourselves for others. To the extent that you become invested in another, that is the extent to which you'll be able to love them. Let's pray. Abba, Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. You are good and gracious. Thank You, Lord, that we get this front seat to see what it is that You said to this lawyer, to this expert in the law. And You have called us to love You because You have earned our love. Father, I pray for these young people that their eyes would be opened to the greatness of the things that You have done to earn their love and that they would so love You with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their minds, with all their strength. And Father, I pray that You would place within their hearts, You would place something there where they would start to now love their neighbor by investing their lives in others. Father, I pray that You would so draw them close to Jesus that they would realize that they have been saved for good works to invest in others. And Lord, for those here that do not know You, I pray that they would see that there is nothing that they can do to earn salvation. For it is by grace that they can be saved through faith. Father, I pray that they would look to Jesus and believe on Him and be saved. Save their souls, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.